Hey, cuz, welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is. And today, we're taking a look at one of Gordon Lightfoot's bigger hits. How good it is. Hi there, I'm Claude Call, and since we're talking Gordon Lightfoot today, how about a little Gordon-related trivia for ye? Here we go. What does Gordon Lightfoot have in common with these other Canadian musicians? Paul Anka, Joni Mitchell, and Anne Murray. Other than being Canadian, of course, they all have something kind of cool in common. What might that be? I'll have that answer at the end of the show. A few weeks ago, I teamed up with Mike Messner, a fellow educator and the voice behind the podcast Carefree Highway Revisited, which centers around the music of Gordon Lightfoot. His is a more fan-oriented podcast, where in each episode, he and a guest take an appreciative look at a different Gordon Lightfoot song. Mike got in touch with me to inquire about some cross-promotion, and so I listened to a few of his shows, and I liked what I heard, so I agreed to that, and then I suggested that we do a crossover episode. He was amenable to that idea and asked what song I'd like to discuss. Well, his is kind of a deep cut show and mine is more about the hits, so I chose Sundown because it's one of my favorites. We got together through remote recording since we're on opposite coast of the United States and we spent a little while talking about various aspects of Sundown. He's already dropped his version of this uh, interview as his episode number 15. So having said that, here's me talking with Mike Messner. I think some of the, the better podcasts that are out there are kind of Nietzsche, actually. And yeah, and you're like really Nietzsche because you're not just concentrating on music or pop music or a specific decade, decade but on one singer and, and specifically Gordon Lightfoot. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, like what led you to that? <laughs> Well, I'd grown up listening to Lightfoot's music. Uh, I mean, my dad brought home uh, the double album Gord's Gold when I was three years old. And he would play it around the house. And I mean, I didn't know anything about music. I just knew that it was catchy and it, you know, resonated with me. And so I've been listening to it, you know, ever since. When I started to play guitar when I was a teenager, If You Could Read My Mind was one of the first songs I learned. Mm. Um, and then that kind of converged with my desire to get into podcasting. There's a number of really active uh, Gordon Lightfoot groups on Facebook. And so those, so what happens? I mean, you get a synthesis and you get this, you know, force saying, Hey, why not? So I looked around, there had been no uh, podcast about Lightfoot's music. And I decided, well, it's time somebody did it. And so I sat down one night and recorded it and got an account on Podbean and then realized people liked it and I couldn't stop. All right, cool. So we're, we're talking about Sundown here, which uh, yeah. I'm not going to say was my entry to Gordon Lightfoot because I do remember, if you could read my mind, I was you know about seven when that record came out. Um, right. But that said, you know, I, th I think that was most Americans' entry to, to Gordon Lightfoot. And at the same time, you know, he had been around for several years. And I was actually surprised to learn that, that – uh, Sundown, the album was his 10th. He'd been in the industry since, you know, 66, but most of his work, you're right, Claude, it had been charting in Canada and maybe a little bit in the UK, but it hadn't made a huge dent until this. This is the only album of his that got to number one in both the US and Canada. And I think it actually hit number one on the same day in both countries. Um, 
it has a whole lot of other achievements to it. We can talk about those later if you want. But yeah, this was when people really first got their taste of, of Gordon Lightfoot. And then for the following three or four years, I mean, he was everywhere in the American pop charts. And then probably about 79 is when his um, popularity began to wane a little bit. Yeah, although this was his, his one and only number one in the United States. Correct. Uh, the Both the single and the album of the same name both made it to number one in the U.S. and, of course, in Canada. Of course, he'd done that in Canada before, but this is the first one in the U.S. That's right, or the mm-hmm. only one in the U.S. Now, we have we have different approaches to, to the songs that we cover on our respective shows, okay? You've got a little bit more of, of a fan thing going on. I've listened to a few of your episodes, not all of them yet, but a few. Mm-hmm. And um, and the one I was particularly interested in was the uh, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, since I had already done that episode. Um, oh, OK. Very cool. That was way back. Like, I think episode 16, I want to say it was it was oh, it goodness. was it was early in the show's run. Um, mm-hmm. And and I remember that song being just all over the radio. And that was, right. you know, in the, the winter of that year. And. You know, being a kid, and at that point, I would have been like roughly um, 10 or 11, something like that, um, mm-hmm. that that you, you've you got this sound and it's got this like sea chanty type of feel to it. And, ju- you know, just yeah. the way the, the, the guitars kind of ring out and the just overall sound of the whole thing. And didn't realize as a kid that it was a very, very recent event. You know, I actually, for whatever reason, I took the story to be true. But I didn't think mm-hmm. it was something that happened last year, you know, and that that yeah. caught me a little bit by surprise. Um, now he's not known for doing things. He he's not an overly political songwriter. In that, you know, in his career, it, there haven't been too many times where a news story just smacks him in the face, and he's just absolutely compelled to do something about it. But given the fact that this happened on the Great Lakes, it happened relatively close to home for him, uh, and that. Uh, there were so many people in both those that part of the states and in Canada that cared about it so much. Um, I think it makes perfect sense that he, you know, wanted to uh, talk about that, not in a protest sense because it's a tragedy. It's not something that you know any government did. Um, but I thought it was a great piece of art and. I know that people have had different reactions to it over the past. I mean, some people have just said, you know, that's the way you clear out a party is that you put on, you know, the wreck (laughs) of the Edmund Fitzgerald and people start heading for the exits. But it also means a lot, obviously, to the families of the 29 men who were killed uh, there. And the fact that the bodies were never found, uh, you know, also says something about, I mean, it does add a mystery to it, although there's scientific reasons why, uh, you know, that happened. But yeah, I think wreck was probably his second, it is the most often played song at his concerts. Number two is sundown. Mm -hmm. In matter of fact, he's played it in concert according to, um, setlist.fm he's played it 982 times in concert and he will undoubtedly be playing it at his shows this weekend at massey hall yeah oh and incidentally this was this week was his birthday was it not yes it was he's just he's night he's 83 years young wow mm-hmm. and so, he's still touring and he came out with a solo album not long ago so he is likely to crack the thousand performance mark on that song 
Oh, I have no doubt. I mean, assuming that, you know, the dates that had to be canceled because of either COVID or because of his wrist procedure, assuming those dates are all played off, he'll hit a thousand. Yes. All right. Now let's, let's get into sundown the song specifically. Uh, I, I, I've, I've heard a couple of different interpretations. Most of them seem to uh, center around a a troubled relationship that he had with somebody. And there are differing opinions as far as who that is. Now, based on my my research, I've got my thoughts, but I'd like to hear yours in that respect. But I also heard a different interpretation, and I want to get into that in in a little bit. So let's, let's, let's start with the girl. Kathy Smith. Um, I think most people who have looked up or have heard uh, any comments that Lightfoot has made about it uh, believe that the song is about Kathy Smith. Now, Kathy Smith really cut, you know, quite a figure in the pop scene in the 1970s. Um, She was with Lightfoot for a couple of years, I think they were living together. And the fact that she was also singing on other people's albums at the time really made Lightfoot angry. At one point he chewed her out saying, you know, what are you doing? You're living in my house and you're working for the competition. Are you crazy? (laughs) Um, But one night uh, in 73, I think Lightfoot was at home writing songs and he was doing a lot, smoking a lot of cigarettes and drinking a lot of coffee and probably drinking a lot of Scotch whiskey And he was just thinking, I wonder where my woman is, where Kathy is. Apparently, she'd driven into Toronto to go uh, partying with people. And so it's this kind of paranoid, kind of menacing song that says, you know, if anybody tries to muscle in on my woman, you know, watch it. And given the fact that Kathy Smith was pretty striking, you know, many people would have considered her beautiful. And the fact that she was apparently an incurable flirt and had already messed around on Gordon at least once by the time this song came out, uh, it makes perfect sense that he would write it the way he did. So uh, that's the most generally accepted explanation for the song. What was the alternative one that you had heard about? Um, Basically that he wasn't talking about a girl, but that he was talking about his alcohol problem. And, and that's evidenced in some of the lines about, like, I think it's a shame when I get feeling better, when I'm feeling no pain. And similarly, I think it's a sin when I feel like I'm winning, when I'm losing again. And, and both of those refer to, like, the state of being inebriated. Sometimes I think it's a shame. It, there is absolutely an allusion to that, okay, that he knows in that line, sometimes I think it's a shame when I get feeling better when I'm feeling no pain. He knows he's drinking too much. Uh, and he knows that a lot of that has been brought on by this woman. I mean, coming back to, you know, this idea that it is about a girl. Um, and then sometimes I think it's a sin when I feel like I'm winning, when I'm losing again, this guy feels trapped. I mean, he's obviously deeply in love with this woman, but he can't control her. He said later that she was, you know, a lot to handle uh, or maybe too much to handle. And so I think the song really illustrates 
I do happen to think it is about her, but I think it also illustrates the trap that he's feeling as a result of what he's let his heart get into. And that comes back to that line that says getting lost in the loving is your first mistake. Yeah. And, and what's, what's interesting to me is, is as, and I'm double checking the dates as an 11 year old listening to that, what do I know about women? Right. And, right, and, yeah. and at the same time, there's, there's really nothing in the song that says, you know, really that, that this is a beautiful woman, that this is a very attractive woman. I mean, you got looking like a queen, you've, you've, you know, you hard loving woman, that kind of thing. But there's, there's nothing that, that, you know, really goes into a specific description of like, you know, feminine pulchritude as it were. And yet the woman that I had in my head listening, 11 year old me listening to this song had a very, very beautiful woman. And in fact, even though it says something about her wearing jeans, you know, I have this, like, I have a girl in jean shorts in my head. Always did. <laughs> it's, like Daisy Dukes? No, nah, maybe not quite that short, but yeah, pretty short. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be apropos for around the time that this came out. Uh, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I had not, thought of her as being beautiful when I listened to the song. I was much younger than you were, you know, when I first heard it. Thanks. Um, But we do know that. Yeah. Anytime. (laughs) Uh, But I think there's no doubt that this woman is sexy Mm -hmm. and we know that, you know, beautiful and sexy are not always synonymous. Okay. They may, they may be a woman can be beautiful. She can be sexy. She can be both. But I think this person was, not a classic beauty, but was certainly somebody who was provocative. And we know that Lightfoot has talked about, you know, beautiful women. I mean, he wrote a song called Beautiful. He wrote a song called Approaching Lavender, who is, which is about someone who's clearly just absolutely gorgeous. But this is where, this is a song where he's talking about somebody who's seductive, irrespective of whether somebody would think of her as conventionally beautiful. Let, let's, let's get into the, to the sound of the song and the personnel who, who played on it. I, I think one of the things that's striking about it, it's not a flashy song musically, and yet that guitar kind of grabs you. And I'm thinking specifically of the electric guitar that you get during the bridge and, and you know, sprinkled here and there. You know, like I said, it's it's not it's not flashy, but man, it has an effect on you. You you really dig it. <laughs> yeah, it's such it's such a good sets a good mood, you know, for the song. Um, the album lists that Red Shea played the lead electric guitar, and Red was one of Gordon's original sidemen. Then left the band, uh, and Terry Clemens became the lead guitarist. But then Red returned, and so Red Shea and Terry Clements shared lead guitar for a while uh, as part of Lightfoot's backup band. Red Shea is listed as playing the lead electric guitar, you know, on the the 
the song. And you're right that it is not one of those things where you look and say, oh, man, this guy is Peter Townsend or Jimmy Page or somebody who's just really an artist, you know, who's just absolutely blowing you away with this lick. It's very tasty, but it's Mm -hmm. not you know, fretboard wizardry, I guess what I would say. The other part of the guitar that, that, that is just the fact that Lightfoot's 12 string just fills up that track all the way through. So the producer just balanced this so perfectly and they knew apparently that it was going to be a hit from the night they recorded it. Yeah. And I think the other thing that really carries the whole thing along is, is the, the bass. You know, it, it really, really just the whole thing just kind of rides on that. I mean, that you barely hear the drums. Not It's not that you don't, but you don't really even think of this as a typical, you know, rock set with with the bass and the drums pairing up to, to form the rhythm section. You've got that bass and then you've got the the uh, as you say, the 12 string and then you've got the the electric guitar going on. And oh, yeah, maybe there are drums here, too. But but I think. The the bass is really the 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 bed that the whole thing really lies on. You know, it's interesting that you mention both the bass and the drums. The bass player on this one is John Stockfish, who was Lightfoot's original bass player. Um, he would leave the band, um, and he may have returned just for this particular recording. Um, but John Stockfish was the original bass player. Now, then it, he took, turned it over to a guy named Rick Haynes, who is to this day uh, recording and performing with Lightfoot. So Rick Haynes has been there for a while. The thing about the drums is that up until this time, Lightfoot had not used a drummer on live performances at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in promoting Sundown and in subsequent albums, he was going to use a drummer. And in this particular case, it was Jim Gordon. Um, And Gordon was never officially part of Lightfoot's backup band. He was more of a session guy, although I'm sure he went on tour with him at some point or another. And talking about tragic ironies, I mean, Jim Gordon would later uh, write Layla with Eric Clapton and then be accused of murdering his mother. And right now he's incarcerated someplace in Northern California. I think he's a paranoid schizophrenic. That's right. Uh, I do remember that story. But uh, yeah, I mean, Jim Gordon, I mean, he was a great drummer, but the the drums don't drive the song. I think if, as you were saying, okay, it's the bass and the 12 string that really do it. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of which, I mean, I think we have to, you know, when you mentioned tragedy, we we have to talk about what happened with uh, Kathy. Yeah. I mean, the, for the sake of brevity, uh, Kathy Smith we we've talked about her relationship with Lightfoot Um, that ended for obvious reasons. And then uh, she went to work for Hoyt Axton for a while. She did sing on this album. Kathy Smith did sing on the number two track on this album. She sang on the song high and dry. Mm -hmm. Um, But she, uh, you know, went to work for Hoyt Axton and other acts. Then she ended up in the company of John Belushi And the saddest part of that, of course, was that it was Kathy Smith who injected John Belushi with speedballs the night he overdosed at the Chateau Marmont Um, in, I guess, L.A., maybe Beverly Hills. I can't remember exactly, you know, the location, but let's call it L.A. Um, She did 15 months in uh, prison uh, for that. 
Okay. And then after she got out of prison, she led kind of a peripiatic life, uh, you know, just bouncing all over the place. I believe she's since passed away. But Kathy Smith was, I think, probably the best word I can use for her is volatile. Uh, because she did, as we've said earlier, cut really make a mark on the pop world. Uh, and she would probably be an interesting person to do a, um, like a true Hollywood story or something on that. I'd like to see a documentary done of her. Yeah. And I, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, this, this also shows that, you know, although there was a, a, a tumultuous relationship and they did break up and it was almost certainly because he had, you know, his issues and she probably had hers and so forth. Uh, as I understand it, he actually paid for her defense at her trial. Did he not? Well, I know that he had been involved in assisting her. I don't remember mm-hmm. if he'd actually paid for the defense, although that may, may very well be the case. Um, they did stay in contact uh, for on and off for years. Um, so, but it wouldn't surprise me if Lightfoot paid for her defense because she probably couldn't have paid for it herself. Yeah. 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 All right. Now let me, let me ask you about covers of the song. Are there, are there any that you particularly like? Well, it's very hard for me to, you know, listen to covers once you've listened to the, the, the genuine article. Mm -hmm. Um, I do know there have been some really notable ones. Um, there's a hard rock band called Clawhammer that covered the song uh, back in 1990. And they actually sat down with Lightfoot and played their version. And Lightfoot said, not bad. <laughs> you know, he was actually really impressed with that. She's been looking like a queen in her fading jeans. And she don't always say what she really means. Sometimes I think it's a There was a one by a group called Elwood that turned it into a hip hop song uh, that came out in July of 2000. people were expecting that Lightfoot wasn't really going to like it. Well, I'm sure he didn't object to the royalty checks, but you know, <laughs> I, I've also heard that he was, you know, kind of blown away by that. Some others that I thought were kind of interesting, and there have been just about 60 covers of this as of right now. Toby Keith did this on, on a live album. Um, Scott Walker did it, you know, in the 70s. Ray Conniff has done it. Percy Faith, believe it or not. Sure. Um, 
uh, Trini Lopez, John McLaughlin, who I believe is a you know very well known uh, interpreter of Lightfoot's music, uh, and a few others. But I mean, so but the ones that I'm most intrigued by would have been the one by Clawhammer and the ones by uh, Elwood. Have you heard any covers that you thought were particularly interesting? Um. None that you haven't already mentioned, uh, but I, I am kind of intrigued. I saw a list of covers and that there is one version that was done in French that I'm kind of curious to hear, and I may actually have to include a clip. Hi, Claude here, and I am just breaking in after the fact for a moment to let you know that I did hunt down the clip. It has been recorded several times in French. And, uh, basically what they did was they took Lightfoot's, uh, melody and they set up a new set of lyrics for it. And the basic thrust of the song is that love is kind of fleeting. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's a kind of a nice tune. And I am going to play the clip right now. This one is by, uh, Marie-Ève Janvier and Jean-Francois Bro. Okay. And their version of it is called L'amour c'est comme l'été. Love is like the summer. Just because I'm curious and, and wondering how faithful to, to the original it is, that's one of the things I dig about covers is is they need to be kind of faithful to the original and at the same time put a really interesting spin on it that, that elevates it somehow. You know, it's very it's easy about- to do a version that's like just like this. But but and and I and I'll and I'll give you an example. Like I would think like Tainted Love, which most people don't even realize is a cover, okay? But it's actually it's a very faithful cover of Gloria Jones' B-side song, okay, from what was it, 1965, but it's got this techno spin on it. But if you listen to the two side by side, you're like, okay, clearly Mark Almond listened to this one very carefully before he went and recorded his version, and, 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 and that's what I like to see in a good cover. Yeah, the parallel that I think of is the Black Crows doing Hard to Handle, which had been done by yeah. Otis Redding. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and... You know, they really did study up on it. The Bangles doing white, uh, Hazy Shade of Winter, you know, uh, you know, off the Simon and Garfunkel version. Do, do you have anything else that, that uh, I've overlooked on this? I, we've covered a lot of material in the 20 odd minutes that we've been chatting together here. Well, a couple of things that I found out that are just sort of interesting tidbits. Um, Lightfoot actually appeared on Saturday Night Live and he was supposed to sing this song and the skit that was set up for it was that uh, Lorne Michaels runs in and says, no, Gordon, you're only supposed to sing two songs. And then in comes, guess who? John Belushi (laughs) in his Samurai, you know, album. And he starts cutting the strings off of Lightfoot's 12 string Um, and Lightfoot went along with it. Uh, so that was kind of, you know, might have been if he had had a chance to play that. So I don't think he actually played that on a Saturday Night Live, but he might have. Um, hmm. And then the other thing that I thought of with this is that to me, the title is so perfect because I can't imagine listening to the song at any other time of day. But to listen to it at sundown where 
it's a mysterious time of day anyway, as day is turning into night and you're not really sure, you know, what is going to be happening as it gets darker and darker and darker. And it may very well have been written as the sun was going down, but I can tell you that that's my favorite time of the day to listen to it. Um, let me ask you this. I mean, is since we've talked about our, you know, affections for it as young children, you know, why do you listen to it today? I mean, is it just rooted in your original sort of affection for it? Or do you look at, do you listen to it today through the ears of somebody else? Uh, you know what? It's, it's, it's a little of column A and a little of column B. I mean, yes, I do have a certain nostalgic affection for it. I mean, this was the period where I really first started to collect and buy records of my own and you know that kind of thing and and i mentioned this before on my show is the i I, my mom was kind of young okay you know she was she was 19 when she had me which you know that's it was typical then and not so typical now and so you know we wound up you know being relatively close in age so that she was still listening to a lot of pop music stations. And so I grew up listening to songs and having memories of some songs being all over the radio and then learning later on, yeah, you were four at the time, you were five, you know, like that. <laughs> kind of, wow, really? <laughs> and mm-hmm. and so there is a little bit of that, just me and mom listening to some of these songs. Um, mm-hmm. I think also as I've gotten older and gotten a little bit more appreciation for some of the intent behind the lyrics, because he's not really spelling out things about like, you know, this is potentially a, a, a an unfaithful woman. You know, he, he, he gets that like creeping around the back stair kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I've been in relationships like that. And now I understand a little bit more deeply what he might've been feeling. Uh, maybe it wasn't, you know, blind drunk at the time, but I still had that times when, 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 you know, my woman is out somewhere and I have no idea where she is. And it's making me just a little bit crazy because she's probably in a bar somewhere. You know, she might not necessarily be flirting with anyone, but she's certainly having a lot more fun than I'm having right now. And so, yeah, I've, I've gained Mm -hmm. a new appreciation for, uh, for the song in that respect. Gotcha. So, Mike, where can we find you on the web? Well, I've got two uh, shows that people can find. Okay, the one on Gordon Lightfoot is called Carefree Highway Revisited. Uh, and that, of course, is the one about uh, Lightfoot songs. The other is one that I'm just starting with a colleague of mine from Los Altos High School, and that is called Fait la Force, and it is a study or an examination of the history of Haiti. Uh, and I've just put out two episodes of that. And then my um, email is teachermike72 at gmail.com. Well, I really loved our conversation today, Claude. Thanks for making time tonight. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for uh, for for joining me tonight. All right. You take care now. You do the same. How about that? Thank you, Mike Messner, for taking the time to talk with me. Carefree Highway Revisited, that's his podcast. You can find it wherever podcatcher you prefer. Let's answer the trivia question from earlier. Back on page two, I asked you what Gordon Lightfoot has in common with Paul Anka, Joni Mitchell, and Anne Murray, other than the fact that they're all Canadian-born. Well, the answer is that they were all honored by being put on a stamp. In 2007, commemorative postage stamps were issued honoring Canadian recording artists 
and the artists who got the honor of having the backs of their heads licked were Lightfoot, Anka, Mitchell, and Murray. Interestingly enough, if they were Americans, they would not have been eligible at that time to be on a stamp because they're still alive. ...of a photo called Migrant Mother, which was taken in 1936. The Migrant Mother is long dead, but one of the children in the photo, whose face you can't see, was still alive when the stamp is issued. And that, my friend, is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone, maybe even later a rating, or better yet, a review somewhere. And now you can support the show over at patreon.com slash howgooditis. Maybe don't criticize my philately knowledge, though. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. And, of course, you can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when Billy Paul offers us a helping hand. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time.